Good morning, and welcome to WWDC. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture, with your host, Neil Pan. On June 7th, 2021, Apple held their annual Worldwide Developers Conference, announcing updates to iOS, iPadOS, macOS, and watchOS. In this special episode of Inside the Apple Studio, I'm joined by architect Angelo Morosco of Cadence Studio to discuss announcements and highlights and features that will impact architects that utilize Apple products in the practice of architecture. Angelo, welcome to the show. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me on. It's great. Very happy to be inside the Apple studio. Well, thanks for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And first, I want to remind listeners that we're recording this the day after the keynote, and there will be lots more details about and updates that will be revealed throughout the week of WWDC and over the coming months throughout the beta process before the operating systems are released this fall. So we may not have everything right or all the details just yet, but before we dive into what was actually announced at WWDC, I want to talk about maybe what wasn't announced. There was a big expectation, I think, at least until maybe the day before that some new hardware would be announced. Yeah, those M1s. Yeah, the M1X, I guess, or maybe an M2, uh, new MacBook Pros, 14, 16 inches. Were you disappointed that uh, we didn't see those? You know, I thought it was a slam dunk. Uh, I really thought that the uh, MacBook Pros would uh, help distract the developers from all the other news out there lately. And uh, yeah, we'd have some great new hardware. It seems like this would be the time to do it. Although looking back at the overall show, I mean, it was almost two hours long without any hardware announcements. Yeah. And so if they really had this much material, and and we all know that there's uh, hundreds of articles being written in the last 24 hours about all the things that they didn't talk about or that names that were on slides that didn't get mentioned And then, of course, they had the other conference in the afternoon for the developers yesterday to go into more details. Yeah, their State of the Union. The State of the Union. Yes, that was it. And so was there enough time to even get into this? Probably not. No. The other thing, too, is that there's been the rumors out there that these machines really are not going to be ready until the fall at the earliest and maybe even a little later. And so, you know, is it smart? I mean, they've done this before. They have announced like the Mac Pro. I think the iMac Pro was announced at WWDC before and wasn't shipping until the end of the year, literally (laughs) days before uh, New Year's. So it's not uncommon. They've done it a couple of times before, but those were more niche products. These are mainstream. So maybe it's just not time yet. Yeah, the anticipation's killing me. I was ready for those. (laughs) I think you and a lot of other people are ready to plunk down their money for new MacBook Pros uh, with enhanced M processors for sure. Yeah. So my main comments as we kind of get, before we kind of dive into the specific operating systems, I think that really from something I kind of noticed is a general comment is that it seems like out of all the... I, I 
out of all of the OS announcements that each each of these OSs, now obviously Mac OS has been around the longest, but each one seems to be maturing. You know, we're now on what the 15th version of iOS <laughs> and all of these platforms are sort of merging. That's a, a very common theme. And we'll kind of reiterate this probably a few times during this episode that there's all of these features being announced for all of the devices and that they're all there. And I think this is kind of one of the first times as we now have M Apple Silicon Macs that Apple can really do this. They can announce features for iOS, for iPadOS, and they're immediately available. I mean, there's been so many WWDCs where, oh, here's these new features on iOS or, or, or iPadOS, and oh yeah, they're not available for the Mac. That was pretty common. Yep. And I think this is the really the first time that we see that all of these devices are getting similar features all at the same times. But what I also think is interesting is that they're taking Apple's taking a different approach than Microsoft. Microsoft's mm-hmm. approach and kind of the PC industry has been kind of let's smash all these devices together into kind of these hybrid things that are part tablet, part laptop. Uh, lots of power, very bad battery life, but just, and then even with their software, I mean, at one point they tried to make a tablet software, what was it? Version eight, I think of, Mm -hmm. uh, of windows. And it was just horrendous. Nobody wanted that. And I think what Apple's doing here is they're taking the things that can work across all of their devices. So you really get an opportunity And I think this is consistent with their messaging for years, which is you use the device that's best suited for the task. And now with some of the features that uh, they showed today, you can be on your Mac controlling things on your iPad that are not, that are iPad apps. Yeah, it's all integrated. And vice versa. They're always communicating. Mind blown. (laughs) And I run it. I actually, I want to, I don't know if this is the right time or not to kind of ask you about this, because I know you've been a big proponent uh, in the past. We've had some conversations about when is Apple going to have a touchscreen MacBook, uh, because I want to draw on my MacBook. What do you think of some of the features that they showed off that where all of these devices can work seamlessly kind of together? You just put it right next to it and the mouse moves back and forth between the screens and you're controlling apps on either one. How do you think that will impact, could impact your thinking on future devices? It's coming together. I think there's still baby steps, to be perfectly honest. I think, uh, you know, the multitasking was the real big one on the iPad. So that was, uh, I was really excited to see that pop up. Still seems a little convoluted, but it's a big step in the right direction and much, much easier than the gestures, which were really awkward. So that to me is big. The, uh, what was it? Continuity. Now they're calling it something else where you slide your mouse across the different screens. Definitely cool. Universal control. I think yes, they called there it. There you go. Um, Logitech has been doing that for years with their flow technology. You can even go cross platform. So it's not exactly something brand new. So it'll, it remains to be seen, but they're baby steps. We're getting there. Yeah. I think Apple Silicon is really the chance for Apple to take their hardware to the next level. Absolutely. And 
bring these things together, make them, I mean, really they work seamlessly together and each one is enhancing each other's uh, features so that the task that you're doing is best utilized on that device. And sometimes it's just the screen size, but with the iPad, you have the mobility and the pen uh, or the pencil, I should say. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where Apple really takes all of this over the next decade. Yep. Because I think that when you look at Apple over the last decade, you saw major advancements with iOS and the iPhone and the iPad. And really the Mac was very stagnant for many years. Yes, it was. It was the stepchild. Yeah. And now I think, especially after seeing the 24-inch iMac that just came out, we're really kind of seeing Apple flex its muscles on what it can do when it has its own control over its processors. That's why we wanted those MacBook Pros. <laughs> <laughs> Just waiting and waiting for those. That's going to be, yeah. I think, pretty amazing. I think we're going to end up having to wait until the fall for yeah. any sort of announcements. Uh, I think at this point, it's very unusual for Apple. I don't know if they've ever had really any events between now throughout the summer. Yeah, It's usually, well, I should take that back. They used to do Macworld Boston in the summer, I think in August or something like that. Uh, I'm forgetting the dates now, but in the last decade plus, it's really been kind of a quiet time, software time, and then the big fall announcements coming usually in September. It's going to be a huge hardware packed uh, fall. Uh, hardware and software, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of software, let's uh, let's dive into. So let's start with iOS 15 because I think that a lot of the features are not specific to just iOS. They, as we were mentioning earlier, these features are coming to all of these devices, and I think a number of them were mentioned and started with really iOS. There's a lot of overlap. So yes, you know, it, it works for any M1 device. Well, you know, what's interesting about that working with, have you, I noticed, I, I looked it up. The iOS 15 is compatible with all iPhones going back to the 6S. <laughs> That's 2015. Those devices were released in 2015. That's that by the time iOS 15 comes out, that'll be six years. By the time iOS 16 comes out, it'll be seven years of iOS support on a device. Try that on an Android device. <laughs> I mean, barely, I mean, you typically maybe get a year. Yeah, if you're lucky. If you're lucky or an update, if ever. Yep. I mean, really, I mean, that just, just blows my mind and- not only just from a feature standpoint, but also from a security standpoint, mm -hmm. you know, these devices are continually being updated and protected. Yeah. The backwards compatibility has been quite good. Yeah. There will be some features that will maybe either not be available or not work on uh, some of the older devices, but that's still pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. I know it's allowing me not to update uh, some of my family's iPhones because, okay, guess what? Your device still works on the current operating system. <laughs> Ad. I know, I know, that's, that's bad. One of the first things they featured in the event was FaceTime. 
And there were a number of enhancements, I would say, Mm -hmm. to FaceTime. What did you think about some of the enhancements, one, and then two, will you use them? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think personally, there a lot of these things are great, but you know, for working in a studio, maybe not so much. I mean, I think the big question is as well. Yes, they mentioned COVID, and over the last year, we've all been communicating via video calls. And I'm like, well, yeah. So a lot of these FaceTime features, uh, you know, definitely are in Zoom and GoToMeeting and a lot of those other apps. But obviously, they put a great twist on it. I mean, with the tracking, with the camera, the portrait mode, there's a lot of things in there that are quite good. Even the sound kind of moving around and giving you kind of a spatial awareness. Right. Those types of things and the fact that they work again across all devices. So iPad, iPhone, and the Mac uh, is quite good. And I think this is going to be somewhat of a common theme throughout a lot of these features is that the majority of Apple's users are consumers. Uh, They're not the business. They're not all business users. And then that's not to say that uh, all of us don't use our iPhones and iPads in our business. But I think that larger businesses, the enterprise, if you will, they, I don't know, I'll, I'll get slammed for saying this. I know they use uh, iPhones and iPads in enterprise all the time, but I think Apple's, and where I'm trying to go with this is I think Apple looks at it as consumers that use our devices. Mm-hmm. What are features that they will find useful? Because I think something that we oftentimes lose sight of is that we're deep into a lot of this technology. Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is look in my house and look at my own family and they're completely clueless. They don't (laughs) update. In fact, they get annoyed with me because I'm like, update your device, update your device. Oh, I don't (laughs) care. And so I think we have to sometimes take a step back and consider that not everybody's really into this stuff. It's just a useful device to them. And if it works, it works. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think when you take that sort of perspective and you look at features like like this new the new features in FaceTime, that you know this is going to be huge for a lot of their customers. But I do think that you're absolutely right because when I look at my own personal use of FaceTime, it's almost zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, my kids will occasionally call me. In fact, my daughter called me from a friend's house because her friend's phone was doing something weird and they couldn't figure out how tech to help. not do it. Yeah. So it was tech help through uh-huh. FaceTime. Uh-huh. And, you know, so it was like, okay, we'll point the camera at the phone so I can see what it's doing. And, uh, you know, uh, but we really don't use it. Of course, we've been in quarantine for 14, 15 months now. So yeah. uh, it's really easy to, to not use FaceTime in the house. You know, when they started to announce and it's cross-platform, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, okay, here we go. And then they're like, in a browser. In but, a browser. I mean, it's a big step. I mean, it's a first step. So, you know, Android, iMessage for Android, it might happen someday. You never know. I don't know if we'll ever get iMessage, <laughs> but Apple's been very upfront and forward about FaceTime. 
being cross-platform. Mm-hmm. I remember when they first announced it, they were like, oh, this is public and we're going to let anybody be able to use it. Mm-hmm. And that never happened. <laughs> I don't know if that was Apple's fault or third party's fault or something, but either way, I still think that what's interesting about the FaceTime stuff is all the sharing features. I think this is going to just be very, very popular. I, I wonder if some smaller firms may start to use the FaceTime or the features because there, there seem to be a lot of Zoom-like features. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, ga- the grid view, you know, we finally get a grid view. So that bouncing around window thing <laughs> that we're sliding around and distracting you. Yes, which demo is really great, but I think in real life, <laughs> Nobody liked that. The ability to share calls with a web link. And you mentioned, you know, being able to join on an Android phone or another device with a browser. I think this is going to really be interesting. I just wonder how much this will end up getting used because over the last, say, 15, 16 months, we've all adopted different apps to do this. And I wonder if there's just too much momentum behind, uh, you know, probably Zoom being the most popular of apps. Is there just too much momentum now? Or is Apple going to get a slice of that market somehow? We've become the Zoom generation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I could see this as a way to work with clients or consultants from job sites. Mm-hmm. You know, most people have the phone. FaceTime's already there. So from a job site, instead of trying to do a Zoom call, mm-hmm. you know, will people maybe start to default to, to this instead? I don't know. And that, that brings up, I mean, communication for the studio, you know, one piece I've been pushing for and bugging Apple about is they have the uh, iMessage or business chat option, yeah, which I think would be really great for residential clients. And unfortunately, they're still in the early stages of rolling that out. So for really small businesses, not quite there yet. They still require a big back-end like marketing-type software web app. Oh, is that right? But uh, to be able to have a client who can just use their phone to chat with their architect, I think would be really handy. So hopefully that will come to fruition. And using the the business chat, not your own personal uh, exactly phone number, essentially. Mm-hmm. Separation there. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yep. You probably share your number with way more people than you'd care to. I try not to. I really try not to. <laughs> I know for me in, in my job, I, I am lucky enough to have two phones. And while it's a pain to carry around two phones... It hasn't been a pain during the pandemic because I'm here at home, but it's nice to have the second phone that it's like, okay, I can text clients and other people and I can turn it off and when I'm not at work yep. and it's not a problem. You don't have that happening. So, right. But I, I think another thing that was also kind of interesting was the whole uh, share with you, mm-hmm. you know, links and images and other content all in messages and then that going out to other apps. I don't know how much this would be a, a work sort of thing, but I think from, well, I think where this might help is just being a little bit more productive on your device. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody sends you a link to a product or something else, it's not going to show up 
anywhere but in messages. And then if you forget about it, you've forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Or if it scrolls off the page a, a ways, you're, it's like, well, where was that link again? Where if it shows up, you you open up your browser and there, hey, there's some links to some something that somebody messaged you, mm-hmm. you know, a client or a contractor or something like that. And it's right there. So, oh, there it is. I don't know what what's your thoughts about some of that, and and then they also talked about pictures and having multiple pictures in there and being able to sync that back in automatically to your photo library. I thought was mm-hmm. is you know I just overall I see that feature as something just making you more of your devices more productive for you. Yeah, and not going to some black hole that you cannot ever find again. So the kind of intelligent way that messages is now what separating out rich content so that you can get to it and see it uh, in its context. It's pretty handy. I agree. And that, that, that actually kind of leads us to something else I wanted to touch on next was focus. They, they mm-hmm. labeled it focus, but it's really kind of a granular control of notification mm-hmm. where there seems to be a way to, I mean, we had noted, we had that ability to say, turn off certain apps and in fact, it's probably a little less of a granular control and giving you more of a broad-based control by saying, hey, I'm at work. Here's mm-hmm. all the settings you need to set while I'm at work so that I only certain things come through. And so instead of, I guess it's kind of more, maybe more of a grouped control of notifications. Yep. I think this is going to be fantastic. It's, it's huge. And it, it shows, finally starts to show some of the power of iCloud. I mean, you know, having a complete cloud setup and the syncing of those settings. Yeah. So when you set up those certain saved notification, whatever groups or whatever they are, they sync across all your devices. So very handy. So if you customize it once, you don't have to go to your second device, figure it out. How did I do that? Do it all over again. They just show up. Right. So that to me is really starting to bring into focus what I, the power of iCloud and what it can do. Something they're slightly rebranded as well, which I'm not sure if I have that noted in my notes, but it is something that uh, Apple is, is kind of, it's interesting. They're kind of rebranding iCloud to iCloud plus and adding Mm -hmm. some features that, uh, that I, I think actually is, I, I have maybe down in uh, the privacy section when we get to that, we'll, we'll mention that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, you're right. It really is kind of Apple leaning on some of the things that they've or, they already have and that everyone really uses and just showing you the power of the walled garden, if you will, right? Everybody mm-hmm. complains the walled garden is bad. Well, here's some things that the walled garden can do for you. Mm-hmm. One of the other main highlights they had was maps. Mm-hmm. I was really kind of very surprised. And, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to live in the San Francisco Bay Area because it tends to be <laughs> one of the main, one of the first places that Apple introduces a lot of their uh, new map technologies and, mm-hmm. and features. So I oftentimes get to get to see those before most of the country does. I thought that really they're taking this this whole mapping thing to to like the next level, just the graphics, the ability to Apple's been talking about augmented reality for a long time. Mm-hmm. Tim Cook has famously said, there's a lot there and we've, 
seen so little of it. Yeah. Precious little. Yeah. And then you look at maps and you see that, oh, you're going to be able to tell when you're going under overpasses. Yeah. And to me, I don't know that I could be completely wrong. That's not really augmented reality, but I think it really, at least in that sense, it's not really maybe augmented reality, but I'm sure they're using some of that technology to kind of place you in in a setting. There is a feature of augmented reality that I think is going to be really helpful for when you're traveling especially, and you're on a, uh, you know, a Metro or here in the Bay area, BART, Mm -hmm. it oftentimes happens to me. I come up from a BART station (laughs) and I don't know if I'm turning left, right. I mean, I've done this dozens of times now, and I still don't know if I'm getting out the right way. And they showed a feature I thought that was really interesting. They did mention this was augmented reality with step-by-step directions so that when you do stand, get up to the street level, they use augmented reality to recognize where you're at and tell you which direction to go. I mean, this is fantastic. You pop up Manhattan, middle of Manhattan or the middle of Chicago. Yeah. And you don't know which, yeah. Which of the 10 stairs, you know, is popping you up on the street. <laughs> yeah. And you have no idea and you're around a bunch of big buildings and yeah, the pointers kind of wandering around GPS doesn't know what you're doing, but I think Yeah, there's a lot of potential here to really be helpful. This will really sort of, when you're going out to a site, help, you know, if you're going out to meet somebody for the first time, Mm -hmm. these are all really useful, useful tools to kind of orientate you. And again, and I'll probably say this a number of times, make you more productive, Mm -hmm. right? There's less time wondering what the heck's going on and, and how things are working. Yeah, I don't, I don't use maps a whole lot. They, they were a little slow on Denver. Google's always been uh, big in Denver just because they purchased Keyhole many years ago that was a precursor to Google Earth. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of history of 3D mapping around the Denver area in Colorado. So that's very strong here. But again, whenever I open Apple Maps, the... Uh, they kind of abstracted, but still the clarity that they add to their graphics, you know, it, a lot of spaghetti interchange, you know, or something like that. I can see that really being helpful to explain where you're going instead of just a 2D, you know, diagram that makes no sense when everything is overlapping everything else. And yeah. there's, there's a lot of potential there. Apple certainly is playing the p- catch up game with Google. Yeah. On the whole maps thing, they probably will forever be doing that. But I think they've really closed the gap for most people. I know that they've introduced their new maps, I think, across the entire United States and to a large parts in Europe as well. They certainly have got a long ways to go. And in some areas, they're just not, I mean, Google's going to you know, eat their lunch when it comes to that. And uh, as you mentioned, even in Colorado for you, but here I, again, I'm lucky that they spend time here in the Bay area to really enhance these features. And so I I'm spoiled and I get to, certainly I'm probably biased because I'm getting those new features first mm-hmm. and able to use them. Yep. And I know we haven't been able to travel in more than a year. So I know when I have gone to Canada in the past, Apple Maps was really falling down. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, time to switch back to Google for this when I've traveled. So yeah, they've got some catching up to do, but I really like some of the new features. What I'm really curious, and 
I, maybe somebody out there listening might know. And if you do get in touch with us, because I wonder what they are using to create all these little 3d models, mm-hmm. uh, especially the new enhanced ones that they showed in the demos. I think we mainly saw San Francisco, mm-hmm. the ferry building and Coit tower. And some of the other monuments in San Francisco were just beautifully rendered. They're not, I mean, they're cart cartoonish a little bit, mm-hmm. but they, do kind of really give a sense of reality to things that I think are just, you know, just amazing. So if somebody knows what they're doing, I mean, what sort of backend software they're they using to render these things? I know Google bought SketchUp mm-hmm. and really kind of used SketchUp to model a lot of their buildings. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they're still using that in the background or if they've developed some of their own technology to do that, but I'm, I'm curious what Apple is doing. I mean, they're quite elegant, so it would seem that there's some human intervention of some sort to to pull those buildings off, you know, to look that good. There has to be. Yeah. Somebody's modeling these things that way to make that happen. Yep. And I'm just curious, what what software are they using? Because I think that would be cool to, to know what they're using. And maybe they developed it in-house, who knows? The next item I had on my list, and I was just kind of touching on some of the highlights, but Safari was one of the next things that they mentioned. I don't know if we need to spend a lot of time on this, but one of the things I thought that could be quite useful was they mentioned a new feature called tabbed groups. Mm -hmm. And it looks like that could be a really useful way to save pages and collections to easily get back to. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we oftentimes as architects, we're doing research on products or all sorts of different things. And being able to kind of keep a collection of design research as a group of tabs, I just think that's a really useful thing because a number of times I've had like, and I don't keep a lot of tabs open, but I might have four or five, six tabs open and I want to keep those open. I'm say working throughout the day on, on something, but then I have to open another tab and I kind of maybe pull it off to another wind, you know, another screen. And then I'm done with that. And I instinctively just quit Safari. Yep. Now, thankfully, Safari does have a feature to open up all of your last tabs that you had open. And I've that saved me a couple of times. But I just think that being able to group tabs to come back to at a, a later time, again, another productivity sort of time saver, if you can kind of incorporate that into your workflow. Yeah, I mean... Having two or three tabs open at once, a lot of times they're related to each other. You know, you're pulling information from three or four of those tabs and, you know, they're, they all relate to each other. And when you lose those, it can be really aggravating. And I, it was pretty cool. I think they showed a demo of dragging that over into notes or something. And it actually, the links all came over together. So it was kind of nice. Right. I mean, Safari is definitely becoming more productive with the tab management and then the extensions. So they, they, they mentioned, I mean, this is overlapping a few other areas, but extensions in Safari on the iPad and the iPhone, yeah, which is really big because it was so convoluted to try to use some of the share sheets or the ways to get into extensions. And now things like you know, the great app, one password to be able to just have that right in your browser on a mobile device will be very handy. Right. Now, do you use a lot of extensions? Uh, I don't know if you use Chrome uh, and, and several extensions to do things. I am not 
a big extension user. I probably am a little shy about using extensions from the old days of <laughs> first using a web browser and then you added extensions to your web browser and suddenly it, it got taken over or something or completely corrupted and your web browsing experience was completely foobar because of it. Or maybe I'm just not really utilizing my web browser in the way I probably could. Do you use different extensions that would be other than one password, which I think would be fantastic, save me a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Do you use a, a number of extensions? It's pretty, it's a small list. Uh, Evernote's one of them. Let's see what else. Uh, Pinterest's pretty handy. Evernote has the screen grab kind of built right into it. So you can almost get anything off the web and into something that for historical or a precedent or something like that. But one password is definitely at the top of the list. So on every browser, yeah. doesn't matter if it's Safari, Chrome, or anything else, Edge, even, yeah, it's one password. I use one password a lot too. Well, I really do think though that opening that up and allowing extensions from other browsers and kind of not having to completely rewrite just mm -hmm. to be usable in Safari is a big thing. It's a big thing for Apple too, because they <laughs> they typically want to do their own homegrown thing. Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is Apple maturing a little bit and understanding that they have to play in a bigger play yard, mm -hmm. uh, especially, I don't know if we'll talk about it specifically, but I know one of the things I remember seeing was being able to use uh, Siri on other devices. Third-party devices, yeah. I don't want to say, hey, Siri. Of course, I just did. Sorry about that, whoever got uh, an activation. But asking Siri to change your thermostat mm -hmm. when it's not a Siri device, it's not an Apple device. I think this is Apple recognizing that they're not going to walk in like they did with music and control the whole world. Yep. It's Amazon's world and Google's world. And if they want Siri to be useful, they need to open it up. They need to be, they need to play with everyone in the same playpen. What did you think of, and I'm going to mention wallet, probably don't think too much of uh, architects using wallet, but I think there was an interesting part. I mean, we all use it, but I think one of the interesting things for architects is the home key feature. For me personally, I don't use a lot of home devices. I don't have lights uh, that are controlled with Siri or anything else. And certainly I've been very leery about using a, a front door lock. Mm -hmm. Being able to use the U1 chip in your phone now, or even in the, the latest uh, I, um, Apple Watch version six, that it has that uh, capability so that you can just walk right up to your door and instantly it kind of recognizes you and opens up and you don't have Bluetooth LE issues and things like that. As we move forward and devices get updated to allow for this, it'll be a little bit more of a seamless integration for home devices, your garage, your front door, you know, they even mentioned your workplace, mm -hmm. you know, and being able to use your phone essentially as your key from our perspective as architects, where we can really maybe see our clients taking advantage of some of this technology and build it into their homes right from the very beginning as these devices begin to mature. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think it can be pretty powerful. And I think uh, 
you know, with the security on board, the local security with the iPhone feel would feel a lot more comfortable. I mean, they mentioned the TSA uh, type pass, your driver's license, you know, your home key. I mean, all these sorts of things are pretty serious security wise. Um, but, you know, I do trust Apple to be a little more, a little safer than many of the other companies. I mean, they're literally, I think it's BMW, they're car keys. They've even right. set up an API for that. So yeah, it should be very interesting, very handy. I mean, we, we have one of the door, smart door locks, but you know, you've got to open the app. You've got to push two buttons. You got to hold your thumb on it to get it to open up. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just be able to walk up the door with bags of groceries. And when I get there, it's close enough. Oh, you know, it's unlocked. That'd be very handy. Right. I think you just very clearly explained <laughs> the reasons why I don't have a lot of those types of devices because there's just too much friction. Yeah. I mean, by the time you've done all of that, I've got my keys out and I've opened and locked my door. Yep. That's been my biggest hangup with a lot of uh, home devices, lights and, and all these other things. It's like when I flip my switch on, my lights come on. When I flip <laughs> the switch, it goes off. I don't know. I, maybe I'm an old man yelling at clouds here, but it just works. And I'm good with that. Yelling at my device to tell my lights to turn on and off, and then they don't work or they sometimes mm-hmm. work. I know it's magic when it does. It's very exciting, mm-hmm. but- And you use it once a month. <laughs> right. And the, but the frustration side, it's like the times it doesn't, I, I give up. I'm like, no, I'm waiting. Yeah, I'm really kind of waiting for these smart home devices to get a bit smarter. The next thing I want to move to, which I think is really going to be exciting, and I think is going to allow people to really- get way more productive. And that's live text. Mm. The whole live text in photos or just holding your phone up to a, uh, up to a photo or up to something that you see, you know, and, and this is again, maybe not completely new because I know there's been like translation apps that you could do that, but this is taking it to a whole nother level. You just hold your phone up to a sign Mm-hmm. And that text becomes live. You can copy it. You can tap it. And you're making that phone call if it's a phone number. This is amazing. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the promise of the QR code mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, if you just point your camera at this QR code, it opens a website or does something, right? Yeah. And nobody can decipher that. But here it's like, oh, I'm going to hold it up to this restaurant. And now I can just copy and paste that name of the restaurant or the business or whatever, and paste it into something else. I mean, this is Apple and it's not, I'm sure there's other maybe apps that can do this and Android may have these types of features. I'm not that familiar with that side of it, Mm -hmm. but just being able to do this is again, just a productivity enhancer Mm -hmm. beyond what you could do before ever before. Yeah. And we have what tens of thousands many thousands of photos now and to have this sort of intelligence to be able to search back through them or recognize things is really helpful. Um, Google lens has been around. That was one of the early versions of it. I mean, my first thought was how can they do this on device? Really? It seems like they would be sending this back to a server, but if they're doing it on device, that's, that's pretty amazing. 
the way Apple's doing this, and the, and we may mention it a little later, but if we don't, they did mention Siri on device. Yeah. And without an internet connection, actually, that's the, the next subject I want to get to in privacy. One of the questions is, what is Apple going to do with all this power? Mm-hmm. Every year, these chips come out, and even the M1 in the iPad, I mean, this is just crazy powerful. Mm-hmm. And we can debate whether or not the software is really advanced enough to take advantage of that speed, but live text and and doing it on device is the way Apple's really using the power of their chips. I mean, they are so far advanced over any other chip manufacturer when it comes to their phones that they can really take advantage of this. And this is how they're using that power. Yeah, we don't need to send this information off to a server to let that big server crunch away and and provide you some information. The power curve that you see every year, and they didn't show it this year. Maybe they will later when they introduce the the next iPhone with the, what is it going to be, the A15 chip or something. These things are exponential as they're going up in power. And this is, in my view, what they're using with that sort of power. It's not just about how fast can an app open up anymore. I mean, we've solved that problem probably with Android too. That's not an issue. With this sort of power, we can really do things that were not possible before because of either network speeds or privacy concerns. And Apple's been criticized about this for a long time that, oh, well, on Android or Google, you can do this and it'll intelligently figure this out. Well, but they were doing that because it was all being sent back to Google's know everything mm-hmm. about you cloud brain. Yeah. The Google brain. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great analogy and serving you that information back. And it's really taken Apple years to get to a point where they have the, the power on their devices to protect your privacy and to do it on device. This is amazing. Trying to figure out, I'm looking at my notes here, but Photos, I think, had like auto-hiding of what, screen grabs or snapshots, that sort of thing, maybe? Yeah, that was in reference, I believe, to the feature in Messages, where mm. it'll automatically add photos that people are sending you in Messages to your photo library, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't add like memes and screenshots, I think. <laughs> they said, no, we're, yep. we're not going to do those automatically. I do hope they give you some control over which ones, you know, if my wife sends me an old photo of our kids from five years ago today or something, yeah, I'd like that in my photo library, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't need everything in there. We'll, we'll see what happens there. But the visual lookup is, I think, what you were mentioning yep. a moment ago and highlighting objects and scenes, recognizing landmarks and things like that, uh, nature, books, pets. They've had some of that ability. And certainly Google is been able to do that in the Google brain, Mm -hmm. as you coined it, they've had that ability, but uh, to be able to do this on device, I've actually searched sometimes my photo library on like, okay, I know I took a photo and it was in this location. So Mm -hmm. I'll go to like the maps feature and also zoom in to where I believe I took that photo and I can take an 86,000 photo library down to maybe only a hundred photos of Mm -hmm. something that happened in that place. Now I'm really in trouble when I have to zoom into my house because I take a lot of photos of the kids and the family and events at my house. So that doesn't really help me there, but I have actually used it to like 
if I'm looking for a computer photo, I've got a bunch of old Macs. Mm-hmm. So if I'm looking for a particular photo, I'll search mm-hmm. computer. And I do hope that their enhancements to that will, will really kind of uh, allow me to drill down a lot faster. Yeah, they're not calling it AI. What are they calling it? Just on device? Not using the AI a lot, but it's pretty much what it is. I think the, the term they used was visual lookup. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's using AI, and maybe they just figure, hey, we'll, we'll give it a fancy name. This is what's really happening, but we don't need to say that. The next big thing that they announced was privacy. I want to get to this part here. We talked about on-device Siri requests, but I want to touch briefly on the mail aspect because they talked about how privacy, they'll be able to hide your IP address. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to be able to block those little pixel images that marketing trackers. Yes, thank you. From a personal use, now I do use iCloud for most of my personal email, not necessarily my, my business emails, but I still use the mail app. Actually, I'm still slave to the mail app. I, I don't use uh, other apps for my mail. I don't use Google mail. So these are huge features for me, but I do have a concern about what that means for small businesses that use those trackers for not nef- nefarious reasons, but for really informational purposes. I think before we started the show, you, you mentioned a use case where you could use that. So what's your thoughts on it? When things are on the defaults, a lot of times uh, there's ways for some of these emails and newsletters to really track what people are doing. And when the spam comes, it's not a good thing. But for marketing, when we send out a proposal to a client, you know, we don't hear from them in a week, we can go back to our marketing uh, web app and it will tell us if they've looked at the email or if they've opened it that sort of thing. And that's done through exactly what Apple's blocking here. And it's been around for a long time and well-known. So it's kind of a hack. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the, the marketing websites will have to come up with something a little more intelligent for knowing when you're trying to communicate that your, you know, email is not going into a black hole. With the app transparency and some of the other features, uh, mm-hmm. asking apps not to track you. I mean, these are kind of low-hanging fruit ideas to kind of protect us. Mm -hmm. And maybe blocking these trackers is another way mail newsletters are going to have to get a little smarter about how they do that. Another big one is our uh, invoicing. Okay. So when you send out an invoice to a client, (laughs) which is very important, it shows when they looked at it, how many times they looked at it. So for us, that's important. So I have a question about that. When you send out an invoice, what sort of app or service are you using to do that that allows you to track that information? So it's an online accounting software. And when you send out an invoice, it automatically tracks whether that person opened it or looked at it. And then, yeah, it's pretty handy. Which one are you using specifically? We're using QuickBooks, but I think FreshBooks, most of them do it. Okay. It's a way to track your invoices and no excuses. A week later, week late, two weeks late, client, oh, I never saw that email. It's like, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I opened it a couple of times and looked at it. We, we'd like to get paid now. And you know, it, in all honesty, it hasn't been that big of a deal when you're invoicing online because it's a couple of clicks for them to pay. It's so easy right? versus the checks quote in the mail. 
people still use that excuse. I, I haven't written a check in years. The other part on privacy that I thought was kind of interesting, again, it goes back to if you're using Safari, the iCloud private relay, it sounds a little bit like a VPN service. It's really not maybe kind of a VPN specifically just for Safari. That's not the right term to really use here because they're, they're bouncing this through a couple of different relays and one knows something, the other one doesn't. No one single thing, including Apple, knows exactly what you're doing. And this is part of the iCloud uh, Plus, yep. which is essentially what every, if you're paying for iCloud, you got iCloud Plus now, or you will when it comes available. This is kind of, a, again, another thing that is just going to happen and it'll be useful for you. And you probably, at least if you're a Safari user, you won't really even think about it. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty handy. I mean, my first reaction when they put the iCloud Plus up on the screen is like, oh, another subscription. Like, <laughs> what? Really? Really? Um, but yes, if you're paying for extra storage, you're pretty much already, you have iCloud Plus. I think it'll probably roll over into that. But there was a couple of pretty clever, I mean, there's the privacy side of things, but there's also auto-generated like fake emails Right. So if you're signing up for stuff, you really don't want to share your main email. That's pretty handy. I think buried even further into that was uh, email domains, custom email domains. So yeah. that could be pretty interesting, you know, for maybe a family email domain or something like that could be very handy. Now, I wonder from a business aspect, because you're not using iCloud mail for your, not the app, but the mm-hmm. service for your work email. And, and probably very few of us are. Will those features really be that useful for most mall firm architects? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I, it's just kind of goes back to Apple's main customers are the individuals consumers, I think for the most part. And in that sense, it'll be a big boost for everyone. But some clever stuff again. I mean, account recovery. I mean, iCloud getting locked out of your iCloud account can be catastrophic and they have uh, what is it? identify contacts that can help you get back into your account. I mean, that's very handy. Right. They're still stuck on the ridiculous five gigabytes of storage as the default, which is absolutely useless. But for 99 cents <laughs> a month now, you get iCloud Plus. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> and they even have a caveat that if you get stuck trying to restore a new phone or load up a new phone, they'll, they'll give it to you for a couple of weeks, you know, the extra storage. But yeah, we still have that pathetic five gigabytes of space. <laughs> they want that $12 a year out of everyone. Services revenue. It's all about the services revenue. Mm-hmm. Let's move forward to like iPad OS, because I think the big thing that I saw there was a lot of changes to multitasking. Yeah. Very, very intriguing. I mean, the gestures to work on an iPad to try to do split screen or whatever they call the window over is so convoluted slide over. Thank you. Yeah. I think this is a, it's a good step. I mean, it's a small step, but it's in the right direction of trying to simplify and provide control without going full Mac OS and having the entire menu bar along the top, you know, that whole thing, but having some, not really gestures, but almost like a finger menu bar at the top, you know, to very clearly do a split window, you know, or the slide over, those different ways of bringing up multiple items, you know, on the same screen at the same time, instead of full screen, one app 
all the time. One of the interesting things that Apple does that is oftentimes very annoying, and they've been doing it for a long time. They started, I would think one of the clear things I can think of is getting rid of the scroll bars in the Mac OS finder <laughs> windows, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, they're still there if you actually do something. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in Safari and you're looking at a PDF from a website, you can actually save that and download it without going to the menu bar, but it's again, a little hidden menu or not really a menu. It's a little pop-up that slides over. If you bring your mouse towards the center and bottom of the window, you get these little features that pop up and they're really good or, and or bad, if you will, about hiding how you do things. Teach that to an 80 year old. <laughs> right. And if you go back and you look at the original system software, everything was very visual. It's very obvious, mm -hmm. right? What does this do? Oh, there's something here. I, if I click on this, it does something. And they seem to have continued this idea through iOS and iPadOS, where features are just kind of, they're just hidden. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the gestures. If you don't know the right gesture, like I still cannot figure out how to use split view most of the time. Yep. It's annoying. I fight it more than I actually use it. Yeah. It's really annoying. And I think one of the interesting things that I saw, and again, we just kind of saw some, a few clips of them using this, they're bringing back some visual clues. Mm -hmm. I think if you've got multiple windows of an application open, you get this, uh, Oh, I forget the word they shelf. use, but like call a, a little shelf, shelf on the bottom. Yep. Yeah. A little shelf on the bottom that it shows you those things. Mm -hmm. And when you do go to a slide over or a split view, you get a little pop-up menu. If it's not really a menu, but you get some graphic display about like, Hey, if I tap this, this, or this, something will happen. Yeah. They're bringing back some visual clues that do the things that are already there. Mm-hmm. They really stripped a lot of that. And I know many people complained when Big Sur came out and the <laughs> visual changes to the UI that they made, they hid a lot of the features that were like in Finder windows. Yeah, And you have to click on something now. You have to interact in a way. It, it, it's not visually, you don't know it's there. Yeah. The original Mac OS or system software, probably Mac OS 8, had the ability in the finder window, if you clicked on the name of the folder, you'd get a pop-down menu where you could scroll backwards in the menu if you're the tree of your folder. If you didn't know that, you didn't click on that, you'd have no idea it was there. Yeah. So I guess maybe this isn't a new thing for Apple, but hopefully adding some of these visual clues to access some of these features will really make a big difference. Hopefully they continue this. Yeah, it's, it's moving in the right direction. It's still, still a little rough around the edges. What I'm really curious, especially with the new 2021 iPad, it has Thunderbolt mm -hmm. 4, USB 4. All these terms now are getting so confusing when it comes to USB and yep. Thunderbolt. It has the ability to drive one of their studio displays, the, the big 6K studio display. So what I'm really curious is, okay, if I hook this up to my, if I could afford a $6,000 display, mm -hmm. do I get just one big giant window in an app or can I actually have 
multiple versions. I mean, mm. I think I, I think it'll be really curious to see what they might show in the fall. Yeah. Right. This was a good tease, uh, but I, I do hope they have more waiting in the wings for multitasking that they'll reveal later this fall, maybe, or, or throughout the next year. Yeah. I mean, the, the iPad going back to, you know, using it in the studio. I mean, that is the device for the last four or five years that I use every single day. So it's, it gets heavy use in the studio. Most of it's sketching. I mean, that's the, you know, the Apple pencil is incredible for sketching, but it's a very solid device and it's just unfortunately very challenging if you were a pro user and really wanting to push it. We waited a year for this. It was, seemed kind of obvious, but widgets and the app library <laughs> finally on iPad OS. Ooh, big, big changes. <laughs> I remember watching WWDC last year and seeing the widgets and the app library. I was like, okay, yeah, this will of course be available on, uh, on the iPad. Mm -hmm. Nope. And then it was like, nope, not available. I'm like, wait, did they just forget something? What happened here? It was very weird. Yeah. I mean, the, the widgets, they can be handy, I guess. I was, my first thought was, well, third-party widgets, what, something like maybe Dropbox the last five recently modified files or something like that could be pretty handy for, you know, workday type stuff. App library is pretty handy for just hiding all the junk that you use, you know, what once every six months. So less clutter. So that, that can be pretty helpful, but yeah, baby steps there. Useful steps. And mm -hmm. in fact, another useful step is the quick note feature. Mm, yeah. And just notes in general. Now mm -hmm. you mentioned, I think it was Evernote that you use a lot. Is the new features in notes going to maybe wean you away from Evernote? <laughs> it's getting there. I mean, it's to be able to just slide that out and have it context aware. I mean, that's huge. So it's getting closer to being something. I mean, the power of it is, is pretty amazing. I mean, they got some tags, you can use folders in that context aware option and being able to, again, just pull it out of the corner with your Apple Pencil, I think can, uh, it's, it's getting there. Maybe for personal stuff, whether it's used for work, full-on kind of archiving of stuff, maybe not quite yet. One of the frustrating things I had with using other services is that, in fact, Evernote was one. I think at one point I had my iPad my iPhone and my Mac all syncing different things to Evernote. And then it was like, the free train has ended. <laughs> now you have to pay for more than two devices, I think. And so it's like, well, I don't really use Evernote on this device, so I'll just not use it for that one. Mm -hmm. I started to move away from some of those types of apps that I didn't rely on on a daily basis. And I tried to start to use reminders and notes because I had light use of those apps anyway. Mm -hmm. And what Apple was doing was good enough. Mm -hmm. The reminders app is not a really great, it's not things or, you know, some of the other more pro to do type of apps, mm -hmm. but it was good enough for what I needed. What I'm excited about is seeing how they're taking notes in ways that like maybe Evernote can't do, mm -hmm. you know, they're not the platform provider. So Apple does have that advantage. Let's look at who the main users are here. That's all of our consumers. 
Mm-hmm. And if we can add these features to our con- main consumers, I think, as you just mentioned, it's not going to bring you away from Evernote and, and probably larger firms or other people that have their favorite apps that they use. They're going to continue to use them. This is not going to change anybody's mind. For somebody like myself who uses notes all the time, this is huge. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, okay, I'm getting all these features and it comes with the devices I'm already using that I'm already paying for. And I don't need to go out and get another app. Again, my use is kind of limited, but I am kind of curious once we start with all these little thumbnails pairing in context and all these system-wide quick notes that we start doing, how in the world are they going to manage yeah. manage this? Are you going to open up notes and just see hundreds <laughs> of these little snippets and yeah. how are how are they really going to, I'm sure they've thought about this and maybe that's why they are introducing tagging mm-hmm. to try and uh, yep. find a way to really kind of make this work. But I'll, I'll be really curious because I think organization within notes is something that it struggles with right now. But system level integration across all devices, that's big. Yeah. That's what makes it work. Were you disappointed with anything in iPad OS, were you expecting maybe more, especially after the M1 iPads came out just a, a month or so ago? You know, I thought it was interesting. They didn't really mention, they, they had a shout out for Procreate. No Adobe. Adobe has been working pretty hard on uh, Fresco's pretty handy sketching app. You know, they even have Photoshop on the iPad now, but uh, I was surprised we didn't see maybe any Apple Pro apps on the iPad. It would have been nice to see that finally come to fruition. So, yeah, I mean, that again, it's it's small steps, but I'm looking for some of the, the pro-level apps and that sort of workflow. It is rather curious how, especially now with the M1 iPads, You've got M1 Max, they run Logic, mm-hmm. they run Final Cut just fine. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've, I've heard, uh, I've read that Final Cut in, in certain aspects runs way better than even like the iMac Pro did. <laughs> and you really have to throw like a Mac Pro at it to, mm-hmm. to beat, you know, a Mac Mini uh, with some of the rendering features in, in, uh, in Final Cut. And I, I may be using the wrong terms here because I'm not a Final Cut user myself. There's a lot of power there. Mm-hmm. And it is rather curious why Apple has not done that. Now, the opposite side of this, and we hear this all the time, you know, especially with the term Sherlocking. Mm-hmm. What would it mean to an app like Ferrite that you can edit music or podcasts with, with Ferrite on the iPad? What does it mean to them if Apple comes out with logic? Mm-hmm. Or, and I'm forgetting the name of the uh, really popular video editing app that's on the iPad. What does it mean to them if Apple comes out with Final Cut Pro? Mm-hmm. Are they Sherlocking those apps? They're certainly competitor. I mean, they're available for the Mac mm-hmm. uh, already. So it's not like it's a completely new thing. But would they be accused of maybe squeezing those apps out of the market? Never, never worried, seemed to worry Apple before. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's yeah. a good point, Angela. <laughs> that's a good point. No, I, I mean, what is it Xcode? I mean, at a developer's con, you know, 
conference, it would have been interesting to have something big show up on the iPad to say, Hey, you can finally take this, you know, seriously. I thought it was very interesting. I don't know if it was at the intro or out outtake of the iPad OS event or segment. Mm-hmm. He said, it can be whatever you want it to be. I was like, Hmm. Okay. Does that mean you really don't know what you want it to be, Apple? Like, okay, let's let's add some focus here. It's great that it can do a little of everything, but let's give it some focus. The iPad has really become a device that Apple. I I'm not sure they really, you know, certainly at the beginning, if they really ever thought it would be as powerful and become what it actually has become. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe they did. You know, that was almost 11, that was 11 years ago now when the first iPad came out. So they've really kind of worked themselves into this sort of conundrum of what is this device? <laughs> How do you use it? And, and this is actually an interesting question. Should it be, or maybe should it just not be? And they put both of the iPad and the MacBook together. You know, <laughs> should that be that device or should they just stay separate? From an aspect of who's making the most money out there, mm-hmm. I think Apple's made a great choice. <laughs> Basically, you have to buy two devices to do that right now, where Microsoft and other vendors are saying, oh, we'll, we'll give you this hybrid sort of approach. Yeah. And that approach just hasn't been really successful in the market. It has its people that love it. I know you have one, right? Or, or a Surface, right? Not a Surface, a uh, different one, yep. But, um, you know, having, working on a project, whether it's in 3D, 2D, or whatever it is, and being able to just stop and on that device, stop, take a screen grab, and immediately start drawing and sketching, to me, is just so much more powerful than always transferring things back and forth. And, you know, that, what was their term? It's not continuity, but the... uh, you're thinking universal control. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a cool demo, um, how that will work, you know, with third-party apps, but, you know, to be able to just drag something off the iPad, work back on a Mac uh, and vice versa, you know, will maybe cut down some of that friction. But again, to me, the most powerful way to work is keeping it on the same device and being able to sketch and do kind of quote work real stuff on that same device. And unfortunately, you know, with the iPad, it's plenty powerful enough and the sketching is absolutely a beautiful experience, but yeah, can't do the rest of it. I mentioned it earlier, how I'm kind of excited about what the next decade might bring. Mm -hmm. And I do think that Apple, now that they control the whole widget from top to bottom, software and hardware, that I think they can maybe rethink some of these paradigms that they've been stuck with or that the industry has been stuck with Mm -hmm. for a long time. Maybe that'll change over the next decade. Maybe they can get what they want out of one device eventually. And maybe it's not there today, but maybe eventually. And the power that they're able to pack in with no fans. I mean, just to have this little tiny slab, thin slab of incredible power. Right. I mean, the potential is there. It's more than there. Well, speaking of potential, macOS Monterey. Mm-hmm. In previous macOS releases, they've kind of gone from the big to the small. So for instance, they, they did like Yosemite, 
-hmm. And then they did El Capitan after that, right? Mm -hmm. And here they've kind of gone from Big Sur, which is like a subset of the larger Monterey area. (laughs) They've kind of gone in reverse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. Maybe they liked the idea of uh, Big Sur, big changes that happened in the UI. and, And now they're settling into more of a bug fix and minor update with Monterey. I don't know. Yeah. All the features, many of which we've already talked about, the FaceTime, the screen sharing, grid view, portrait mode, scheduling with a link, improvements to messages, Safari, all the focused features, the quick note notes, the live text, maps, privacy, all of those things are available on the Mac. And more importantly, some of those are limited to M1 Macs. I thought that was very interesting. So not everything... Uh, uh, works on an Intel Mac. So I think some of the FaceTime things, the uh, portrait mode, some of those things are relying on the M1 processing. So that to me is, oh, they're, they're starting to really push the, the, you know, the move to the M1 away from Intel. I would really expect to see them do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not? It's their devices. They need to keep pushing the software to encourage people to upgrade eventually. I mean, a lot of people upgrade three to four years, Mm -hmm. maybe sooner on their main computers for production, or they kind of budget that. I think we've been very lucky. uh, At least I have been personally very lucky to have machines that I've used for seven and eight years or longer, and they're still productive. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's part of the stagnation that Apple's been in with the Mac for that. The fact that, we can still use computers from now I have upgraded it to an SSD. It had a, a spinning hard drive in it, <laughs> but my, my early 2009 iMac is still being used in my daughter and she's going to be starting high school next year. And we'll probably upgrade that. But I mean, all through middle school, she had her Chromebook because the school forced that upon us mm-hmm. begrudgingly. But <laughs> for me personally, I don't like to have a Chromebook in my house, but anyway, that's uh here. They're, or there, but you know, she still uses it because it's got a larger screen and a lot of her stuff is all in Google Docs and it's got a three gigahertz dual core processor. And you know what? For that sort of things, it still works. It's 11 years old, 12, 12 years old now. Yep, they're beasts, but they work. Yeah. And so I, the, the SSD drive is what gave it its second life, on <laughs> it, to be honest with you. Let's talk about Monterey. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a couple of times already universal control. So first off, universal control for those that may not have seen it or heard uh, about it yet, that it basically allows one to work across a Mac and an iPad. And I think they had showed at some point, and I might have missed it, uh, an iPhone as well, but it, mm-hmm. it could be just limited to an iPad. And you know, basically a single keyboard and mouse or a trackpad will work seamlessly between them. I mean, they showed it just, you put your iPad up next to your uh, iMac mm-hmm. and, you know, you can just use your Mac keyboard and mouse and the slide the cursor straight onto the iPad and different from sidecar where mm-hmm. sidecar was kind of mimicking your Mac screen on the iPad, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. But this is like, no, I'm actually using my iPad apps. And I think they, they showed something like in Procreate where they dragged an image out of Procreate across from the iPad over to the Mac, dropped it into another app. 
I mean, yeah. this is <laughs> this was, is kind of like you know <laughs> magic and mind blowing. This is not supposed to happen. It was, yeah. My first question was, ah, oh, let me use the keyboard on the iPhone then for like Instagram, which will is you know still not on the iPad. Let me let me have access to the keyboard for messages on the iPhone. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's more for just dragging images or something you're working on, you know, across the screens. They did show where you could be typing on your Mac keyboard and you're in a document of some sort on the iPad and and you're typing, whatever you're typing is happening over on the iPad. (laughs) They did actually show that. So maybe, I mean, I'm sure we'll see that throughout the summer as the public betas come out in July. This is going to really allow somebody like yourself who uses their iPad in the way that you do to really kind of open up some of what you were talking about, having that as one device. Now you kind of do sort of have one device. You get the big screen and the small screen and the small screen can just walk away. Mm -hmm. You get that portability as well. This is going to be a real game changer. I personally, I don't know how much I'll use it because I have two 27 inch screens. I got a 27 inch iMac and a 27 inch old LED cinema display. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, I don't have enough room on my desk for another screen. And I probably can't see that far anyway. (laughs) I I mean, I'm spoiled in that sense, but 70 plus percent of the users out there are all on laptops. So having a, you know, your laptop and you prop your iPad next to it and you get this universal control moving back and forth, it's really going to open up some workflows for, especially for architects in, in ways that we really hadn't thought of before. Yeah. And cut down the friction. Yeah, the exporting, importing, all that sort of stuff. Very handy. They didn't show it, but hopefully they'll improve the files app to make that a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But even just syncing between things, I think will be uh, really, really helpful. What's interesting is that there's no setup required for this feature. It just works. You just place your device next to the other device and you're able to move your cursor seamlessly between them. I don't know how they do this. Kudos to the Apple software engineers there that that can make this happen. What's also interesting about this is that it opens up ways of being productive with your Apple devices that you just don't get if you're on Windows. Mm -hmm. I mean, this really kind of shows the advantage of being able to use a Mac and an iPad. You know, we use the term walled garden is often used in a very negative sense. But this is a feature that will open up ways of you being more productive with your Apple devices that is a benefit of Apple's walled garden. Mm -hmm. So another thing that you could do too is AirPlay to the Mac, finally. Yeah, very handy. So if you don't have an Apple TV anywhere around, to have wherever you have a big screen to be able to just flick up a photo or sketch or something and talk about it and it, you know, be legible instead of holding up your tiny little phone. And every time you, you know, rotate it, it flips around and there, you know, it's awkward. Yeah. One of the other things that they mentioned specifically for Mac shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Do you use shortcuts a lot on your iPhone? I do not. I've played around with them a little bit, but, uh, you know, to have some kind of more approachable scripting on the Mac, I think would be pretty handy or just repetitive tasks, you know, an Apple script and what automator have been around for many years. But um, I think shortcuts would be much more intuitive. Something I have to often do is I'll go out to a job site 
and I'll take a bunch of photos. Mm-hmm. And I'm using an iPhone 11 for, to do that. And I get these eight, nine megabyte photos. Yeah. And you have to share those with consultants or clients or coworkers, right? And so I did actually build an automator action. I did spend a few minutes online to figure out how to do this where literally all, in fact, it's, a, it's an action. So all mm-hmm. I have to do is select the photo I want, select the action, and it resizes it to like a 1200 wide pixel, you know, plenty large enough to see, yep. but under 500K. And then using the rename f- uh, feature that's built into the finder. In fact, I've had to do this for like, you know, a dozen or a couple of dozen photos. So I just rename it and add a, like one or two character thing. I, I usually use dash SM for small. Mm-hmm. I'm not very sophisticated here. And I can just select all those images, go to the finder, say rename, click enter. And within like a millisecond, it's done. And so within two clicks, I've done what I needed to do from a a photo aspect. And then I can just drag them to my email client and send them off. And I'm sending a two or three megabyte email instead of having to upload them to somewhere and send them a link so they can download 50 megabytes of, of photos or something. Yeah, very handy. One of the interesting things I think about it is you go into Automator and there's really nothing Mm pre-built. They have all these actions that you can drag and drop together, which makes it pretty easy to build something, but there's nothing already Mm pre-built. Samples, yeah. Yeah, like samples. And one of the interesting things about shortcuts is there are samples. Mm -hmm. There's pre-built shortcuts. And one of the ones I used, I modified it slightly and it was more important when I was actually commuting, but I could be able to tell Siri that I'm on my way home. Mm-hmm. And just by saying that, it would send a text to my wife and my kids and tell them that I'm on my way home now, and it would know my location, and then it would give them an estimate of, of what time I'd approximately be home based on my commute from where I was at. Hmm. It was an action I used like every day when I left the office. I would not have built that on my own, but just going into the shortcuts app and seeing, I could just modify this and add the people I need to, and it's done is fantastic. So I really see a whole new world opening up for something like shortcuts on the Mac. And hopefully I know in shortcuts on the iPhone, you can download other people's shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Quite a community online. Yeah. So if you can do this on the Mac, I, again, another huge productivity boost. I don't have to go searching and try and build this automator action that I probably spent a half an hour that even though the few times I've used it, it, it's probably never saved me as much time as it took me to actually build it to reduce those photo sizes. But every time I use it, I just get this really great feeling like, oh, this was so fantastic. I can't do this, or at least I don't know how to do this on my work Windows PC. Yeah. I wouldn't even know how to approach doing that. I'm not a scripter and I figured out how to do it. Yeah, pretty handy. I mean, we gone back and forth, you know, shooting with a DSLR on the site because it's it's great because then you can always you shoot something in the shade or that's underexposed, overexposed, and you can always bring everything back into not focus, but you know, into a well exposed image or crop way in on a certain area. Yeah, we go back and forth and finally just, okay, we're going to shoot in raw all the time and it's a huge Mm -hmm. file, but you know, you can always salvage something out of it, but 
you know, you really need a bunch of lightweight versions of those to be able to send around. So having that automation option with shortcuts, I think would be handy. And a lot of apps also uh, backup files. A lot of apps, you know, save 10 versions of the file or some sort of backup thing. And every, what, maybe week to be able to go through and cleanse your your project folders of those backup files. Another one I could see would be very handy. Yeah. And it could be just set up to run automatically. Mm -hmm. You know, just once a week, go get rid of all those. I'll show my... Know, AutoCAD uh, background, you know, that, that BAK file mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, choose your favorite BIM app. I'm sure they're, they're all there. So, yep, yeah. So I think building those types of shortcuts and having them work across all three platforms, obviously you're not going to probably use that one on your uh, iPhone, Yeah, but just having that ability to do that, I think is really going to be a game changer in ways that will really kind of open up more productivity options for architects that are using Macs, you know, because it, it, that's the biggest challenge. How do we get more productive so that we can turn a profit? Perfect those workflows. That's right. And I think this will be another option that will allow you to do that. And speaking of, of workflows, low power mode. Now I know back in the days of Mac OS eight and nine, you could set different settings for different battery settings. Like if you were plugged in, you could have certain things turned on or off. And, or if you were on battery power, then certain things changed, but we really haven't had those features on the Mac Mm -hmm. with Mac OS 10. Now we're going to get that. But the 20 hours on the new M1 Macs, isn't that an excuse just to go, you know, you need a new Mac, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If my son is any indication he has a new MacBook Air. It's an M1 MacBook Air. And mm-hmm. I don't know when he ever actually plugs it in. Wow. He just walks around with it all the time. I'm like, don't you need to plug that in? No, battery's fine. <laughs> so yeah. it is pretty incredible. But I do think that for those times, maybe you're out in the field or you do have to be away from your power for a while. Uh, you know, or any option to to plug in for power to be able to just automatically set it into a low power mode to extend that battery usage, I think is going to be huge. Yeah, to eke out just an extra whatever, half an hour or whatever you need and not need to burrow down into what system preferences and all the things that are running in the background, but have, you know, a single button you just push and get eke out a little bit more time can be very handy. Yeah, I agree. So Angela, what did you think of the whole event in general? I think overall it was a little light and I was, you know, a little bummed about that, but then, you know, immediately it's like, okay, COVID it's obvious that there's a reason for this. Sure. And the 2020 event was very polished and had a lot of those fun kind of in and out things, you know, people running around and the tracking and the the camera shots, those were quite fun. They, they seemed to cut down a little bit on that, except for Craig, who had all kinds of funky stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have to mention during the watch OS, which is not real relevant for architecture per se, but she used the term architected. Oh, <laughs> You know, you're the, you're the second person to mention that to me. A friend of mine texted me. Has it Uh, become part of the lexicon? Oh, that's like a really architected. Did you really just say that? So 
had to, had to put that out there. But no, I think overall it's a lot of polishing and cleaning up and then great communication between devices and some progress on the iPad. So for me, all in all, it was pretty good for probably a COVID year for Apple. Something that, that I've thought about a little bit is over the past year, Apple's really been pretty steady with its hardware and software announcements and shipping. There's obviously were some delays in manufacturing for the iPhone. It came out a good mm-hmm. month month and a half later than it usually does. But what I find interesting about that is that, you know, Apple has a very long road when it looks at doing these things. It's working on things that are three and four or five, maybe even more than that out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like the M1 Max and Apple Silicon was not a decision made two or three years ago, mm-hmm. right? That decision was four or five years ago. Please, and, yeah. and we're there now. And what I find interesting when you, you look at what's happened during this pandemic is that Apple's decisions that they made in 2017 or 18, 18 and 19, I guess, other than the manufacturing hiccups, everything was already planned mm-hmm. and could happen. What will be interesting is when we are able to look back on 2021 and maybe even 2022 from once we're in 23 or 24, 25 then we'll have maybe some perspective on what they were or were not able to do mm-hmm. during this year and maybe even next year because of the pandemic, because everyone was working from home and you didn't have that sort of collaboration that Steve Jobs and and I know Tim Cook has always talked about the having it, people interact and those random things that happen, you know, the random interactions of inspiration that happen mm-hmm. at Apple Park and uh, before at Infinite Loop. What's really going to be the impact of this from this year and next year? Because all of last year was pandemic year. Mm-hmm. And so what were they not able to do over last year for planning to make something this year or maybe even next year? Where are we going to see that hiccup in either hardware or software? Yeah, I think maybe the event from in the fall, the hardware event, you know, if they have what one MacBook Pro and not much else, <laughs> a new iPhone, a slightly upgraded iPhone and a one new MacBook Pro, you know, M whatever, 1X, that yeah. might be some indication of maybe there's a bit of a hiccup. We may never know, mm-hmm. but maybe with some time we can look back with some perspective and say, "Oh yeah, now that that probably could have happened a little sooner if not for this." But again, we, we probably won't know. They've gotten very good at doing this. You know, they've done several of these now. Mm-hmm. They put the one last year together. They put that together in like two months. Yeah. And they did such a marvelous job with it because really when you look at the fall events that they did and the spring event and now this one, the quality, it hasn't gotten that much better or that much different. So they really nailed it the first time out. Yeah, to be concise and succinct and to really edit those down, it's great. I mean, the amount of information they pack into an hour, hour and a half, even two hours, it kind of boggles the mind. I am curious how long it takes them to put these together, (laughs) especially Craig. I mean, Craig was on on this one quite a bit and 
you know, I was like, how much time did this guy actually get to work? And then he testified during the trial as well. And he had to prep for that. I was like, well, how much work are these guys actually getting done or the, the rest of the team? How much work are they able to get done because they're having to do all this filming? And I can guarantee you that nobody is a natural at this. Or maybe they're, they, you know, some of the senior executives that are on camera all the time or every year have probably gotten pretty good at it. But you know, the rest of the team that, and, and I will say this, because Apple was often criticized for a number of years, especially during the Steve Jobs era, that him and a few other guys were the only ones that ever did anything there. Because yeah. they're the only ones you ever saw on stage. And I have to, even though it did get a little dizzying sometimes with all of the different transitions and we're going from this person to that person to this person, it is really incredible to see the diversity and the inclusion that Apple's preaches often and talks about all the time. And we get to see it on film. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty healthy cross-section. It's good to see going in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's great. And it really shows that Apple is a diverse company. They've got more work to do, especially at the executive team to get there. But I think Apple's moving in the right direction for when it comes to that aspect. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a lot to cover <laughs> in this episode. And, you know, really, I think we only touched on some of the highlights that Apple had to share in this keynote. You've heard our thoughts. So I'd like to invite the listeners to share their thoughts on the announcements at WWDC. What did you think of the event overall? What features are you most excited about? And will you be installing any of the public betas coming in July? You can do so by contacting us on Twitter, email, or on Facebook. All you have to do is search for Apple for Architects on Facebook, follow the page there, and join the Apple for Architects Facebook group. And before we go, I'd like to thank my guest, Angelo Morasco at Cadence Studio for joining me. Thank you again. Thank you, Neil, and uh, a shout out for Apple for Architects Facebook group. That's been uh, a godsend over the years of working through things on the Mac in a studio. It's been a great discussion online. I really appreciate that. So thanks for having me on the show. And uh, if you're looking for me online, we're cadence-studio.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Angelo underscore Arch. And thanks again for listening to this special episode of Inside the Apple Studio. The show will return to its regular schedule, where in the next episode, I'll talk with another architect that will share their architectural and Apple journey. So be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast player by searching inside the Apple studio and tap the follow button. If you'd like this special episode, let me know. And if you're enjoying inside the Apple studio, be sure to leave a five-star rating and comment in the Apple podcasts app. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.